You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Live free or die. That is the state slogan, state motto of the state of New Hampshire, and it finds its origin in a battle cry from the American Revolutionary War. In fact, that cry, live free or die, has actually been the battle cry of several revolutions throughout history. And there's a, it just reflects this intimate, uh, innate longing that all people have for freedom and liberty. On July 31st, 1809, Uh, American Revolutionary War veterans who had fought in the Battle of Bennington gathered together for a reunion, and they invited and asked their general, General John Stark, to give a speech at this reunion. But General Stark, by this time, was well advanced in years. I mean, it had been 32 years since the Battle of Bennington actually had taken place, and so General John Stark, by this time, was getting older. He was Uh, His health was beginning to fail him, so he decided that he would write his speech out in a letter, and he sent this letter to uh, the people who were gathered for this reunion to be read aloud. And so they opened it up, and they're going to read this speech, and this was the whole of the speech. The entire speech said this, live free or die, because death is not the worst of all evils. And that sentiment of freedom and liberty has really been a goal of American society from the foundation of this country. And there are liberties which this country stands for that we all enjoy. In fact, we're enjoying some of them right now, aren't we? We have freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. And that's what we're celebrating this weekend as we celebrate Independence Day. But there is a greater freedom that is available to us, a freedom that makes men and women truly free, no matter what political system they might live under. Because not everyone, you, you may know this, not everyone who lives in a free society is truly free. There are many people who, although they have many great civil liberties, they're not truly free indeed. They're enslaved, they're in bondage, some to substances, some to lies, some to fears, but they're not truly free. Now, I find it interesting that when Jesus walked this earth, he came, he was born into a society that was not a free society. He came into a society that longed more than anything for freedom. That was their greatest desire, was to be free. And he came and he lived in a country that was occupied by foreign military forces. He came to a place where there was taxation without representation. He came to a country where there was this uh, foreign military force that was occupying the country against the will of the people. And what those people longed for more than anything was a leader, one who would start a revolution, one who would lead their people and drive out the Romans and give them political independence. And so Jesus came to that society which longed for freedom more than anything else and this is what his message was to them. He said, there is a truth. There is a truth and if you know that truth, it will make you truly free. He said, there's a truth and if you know it, it will make you freer than any political revolution could ever make you. There's a truth and if you know that truth, then you can be a free people no matter what political regime is in power, whether it's Romans or communists or Republicans or Democrats, right? This was Jesus' message to these people who longed for freedom. They were longing for political freedom, but Jesus came and this was his message to them. You want a revolution and I came to bring you a revolution. I came to start a revolution, but what I'm 
I'm doing is something a little different than what you expect. But what I'm doing is something that will give you actual freedom, true freedom, freedom that exceeds politics, freedom that exceeds laws, so that if the Son of God sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Live free or die. That was the battle cry of the American Revolution. It was the battle cry of the French Revolution. And it's, it's true also of the revolution which Jesus came to bring. And it, because it presents us with an option, a choice is set before us. You can live free or you can die. And that's also a perfect way to sum up the message of this section of the book of Acts that we're going to be studying today. In this section, we see a story about some things that happened in the early days of Christianity. And we're going to see an example of a kind of a contrast between some people who were able to live free and some people who didn't and they died as a result. And we're going to talk about why that happened and how it applies to us. The title of today's message is Live Free or Die. And here's how we're going to break it down for you note takers who like outlines. Here's our, here's our big points, right? First, we're going to talk about the freedom that we deeply desire. The freedom we deeply desire. Then we're going to talk about the things that people are dying to get. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the backwards way to truly get them. So let's begin. The freedom we deeply desire. Please read with me. Acts chapter 4 from verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here in the book of Acts, we are, we are looking at the early days of the Christian church. And what we have seen is how this Christian movement grew. It grew from 120 people praying in an upper room to multiple thousands of people as the good news about Jesus Christ spread and people believed the message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ had died for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we might be made right with God. And he rose from the dead, breaking the chains of death that we might have life everlasting. And that, so as this Christian movement spread, the Christians began, we saw in our last study, they began to experience persecution and opposition, but they were undaunted by it. And we read how these early Christians, this phrase is used several times in the book of Acts, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about what that means. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, it means to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And here we see in this section that we just read what it was the result of them being filled with the Holy Spirit, of them being under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. One of the results we read there in verse 33 was that they became bold about their faith. They spoke boldly about Jesus. Rather than being intimidated by the authorities or intimidated about what people might think of them, they were bold and they spoke about Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection and the hope of the gospel. And they boldly invited people to believe and put their faith in Jesus too. But another thing that happened as a result of these Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit, being under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, the other thing that happened we see here was that this remarkable kind of community was formed. 
And here's what characterized this community. A couple things. One was this. They were of one heart and one soul. There was a unity. There was a solidarity. There was a camaraderie of being bound together and knit together through Jesus Christ. And one manifestation of this, of this radical, radical community, was this attitude they had about material possessions. It's, a, it's a very you know, striking. It says this, No one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They said, What's mine is yours. Now, the Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia. And that's a very rich word. It doesn't, it doesn't, our word for fellowship, we generally think of it in much lesser terms than what the word koinonia means. Like for us, you know, fellowship is like small talk over donuts and coffee after church, right? But, but for these guys, koinonia, what it means is it means sharing. It means participation. It means communion. It means togetherness. And we read that for these early Christians, koinonia was one of their core values. It says in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to it to koinonia, to this kind of community and fellowship. Koinonia was their way of life, sharing everything together from their faith to their time and their lives and even their material possessions. And what was the result of this remarkable community? We read that there was not a needy person among them because from time to time those who had houses or lands would sell them and the money was distributed to those who were in need. About this section, one writer says this. He says, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. And the reason for that is because when we read about the community that these people experienced, um, it, we can't help but just resonate with it. It kind of stirs our hearts because we say what they had, that kind of community, that kind of fellowship, that's what I want. I want those kinds of relationships. I want to be a part of that kind of community. There's a freedom that they experienced in that community, in their relationships with each other and in their attitude towards material possessions that I think we all long for. We all say, I want to be that free. I want to be that open in my relationships with other people. I want those kind of relationships where we're of one heart and one soul. I want to be that free in regard to material possessions, that, that I regard people as more important than things, that I consider that everything I have is God's and I would be willing to let it all go if, if it meant that I could help somebody else. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to be bold. See, these things move us. We think in our heart of hearts, I want to be devoted to a worthy cause, something that matters, something that really matters to the point where I'm, I'm sold out, I'm willing to do anything and to give everything for it. But yet, although these desires resound with our hearts, so often these things elude us, don't they? We don't live that most of the time, at least most of us probably don't. These things are elusive. And that's why when we read this description of this community, it stirs us up and in a deep way in our hearts because there's a freedom that we see that they experienced in their relationships and in their attitude towards material possessions that deep down inside we desire to have also. Now, why does it tend to elude us? There are a couple reasons. One reason is because we're afraid. We are. We are afraid. We are afraid, say, in relationships. We're afraid that if people get too close to us, then they can hurt us. If you let people in, if you let your guard down, if you let people get close, well, then you're vulnerable, and they can hurt you. 
And if you have these kinds of relationships, like what we're talking with here, I mean, people can take advantage of you. You will be vulnerable and you might get hurt. And maybe that's happened to you before. Maybe you opened up to people at certain times in your life and you've gotten burned and you say, I'm not going to do that again. So in order to protect yourself, now you keep people at arm's length because it's just safer that way, right? You're still cordial with people and everything, but you don't let them get too close and that way you make sure that they'll never be able to hurt you ever again. C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this in his book, The Four Loves. Check out what he said. It's, it's uh, powerful. He says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. If you love deeply, you open yourself up to the possibility of being hurt badly. That's the truth. And so while many of us say, I want so bad to have the kind of freedom in my relationships that I see that these early Christians had, I, I want to have that kind of koinonia, that deep sharing of every part of my life with somebody. But, but yet if I do that, I guess I'm opening myself up to getting hurt and I don't know if that's a risk I'm willing to take. When it comes to attitude towards material possessions, same thing, right? We'd love to have the kind of freedom that these people had in the early church that we see here, where they weren't possessed by their possessions, where they were willing to be radically generous, not bound up by the ties of material things, but willing to give and to, to make a difference in people's lives and a difference in the world. I believe we all want that kind of freedom. None of us wants to be bound by the ties of material things. But yet we feel this tension, right, between, being by, between wanting to be free in the area of material things and yet wanting the security that comes from holding on to and hoarding the things that we have. So we're conflicted inside, aren't we? We want freedom, but we also want security. And it seems that we have to choose between the two. We're, we're afraid if we really embrace the freedom that we see in these early Christians that we will lose our security and that scares us. And so many times, I think, especially in our own American society, security is, is really the top thing that we seek after. And many times I believe that we choose security over freedom. But as C.S. Lewis is saying here, if you do that, if you choose security over freedom, it will ruin you in your relationships. You'll become a shriveled up shell of a person huddling up all by yourself in the corner, holding on to all your stuff. And then no one can hurt you but you're just dying a slow death. And you're frustrated because you long for freedom, but yet you're hindering yourself from experiencing it. And you think that having no ties to anyone or anything, that is what makes you free. Not having any responsibilities, no ties, then you'll be free, but you're not. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. That when you have no ties to anything or anyone except for yourself, you're not free. You're actually just locked in a prison of your own creation. You know, another reason why freedom that we deeply desire eludes us is because we tend to also have misconceptions about what freedom is. We tend to think of freedom in negative terms, meaning that freedom, we think, means having no restrictions, right? So when I lived in Hungary, uh, sometimes, you know, 
people would say funny things to me about America. And I remember this one guy, he came up to me, he said, hey, you know what? You know, you guys in America, you say that it's a free country, but you know what? It's not a free country, and I'll prove it to you, and here's how. I heard that if you want to build something, like a structure or something like that, you have to get a permit. That's not freedom. You got to get a permit to build something. That's not freedom. You got to pay taxes. You call that freedom. That's not freedom. Now, of course, we would say, well, that's a complete misunderstanding of what freedom is. I mean, because freedom doesn't mean having no rules. Rather, it means having the right rules in place which liberate us and give us greater freedom. So, for example, you are free to eat fatty foods. You can eat as much fatty foods as you want with no restraint. But the thing is, if you eat fatty foods with no restraint, it's really just a matter of time before you are restrained to a hospital bed, right? If you follow the right rules of good eating, so again, following rules here, you're giving up some freedom, but you're giving up lesser freedom for greater freedom, right? So you will have the greater freedom to be able to do any number of things that you want and have a long, healthy life and freedom to do all kinds of stuff. And so in order to have greater freedom, you have to give up lesser freedom. If you want to have a freedom as an artist or a musician to support your family and to make money doing what you love, you have to give up lesser freedoms. You have to be able to spend hours a day practicing and getting better. So true freedom is not found in having no restraints, but in having the right restraints. That's why the Bible says that the ultimate bondage that a person can be in is to rebel against God, but that obedience to God's law is liberating. And if you freely choose to submit yourself to God's way and God's law, then in turn, you will be set free. So we, we often have a misunderstanding about what freedom is all about. It's kind of our cowboy mentality in the American West, right? The Lone Ranger. That's what it means to be free. No ties, no responsibilities, no relationships. But that's not true. That's not freedom. And that's why we long for this kind of freedom that we see here in the early Christian church, this freedom that they had in their relationships, where they weren't afraid to get close. They weren't afraid to share their lives and their possessions with each other. This, this freedom that they were willing to give things up and lay things down for the sake of others. So how can we get that freedom that they had? Well, we're going to get to that. So hang with me. There's one man mentioned here as an example in the last two verses of uh, chapter 4, 36 and 37. There's one man mentioned here as an example of this remarkable community that characterized the early Christians. His name was Joseph, but the, the apostles gave him a nickname. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was one of the people who sold a field and, and gave the proceeds to the church to be distributed to the people who had needs. So son of encouragement, he was an encourager of others. I know a few people like this, and I'm very thankful for them. I'm so glad that I have them in my life. It's refreshing to be around them. The encouraging people, you know, who aren't threatened by other people's success, who don't feel the need to put down other people in order to make themselves look better. In order to be an encouraging person, though, it requires a level of freedom, a level of freedom from concern about what other people think about you. And that's a rare thing, which is why it stands out so much, which is why uh, this guy gets a nickname. You know, not everybody gets a nickname. He gets one, son of encouragement. He was just, he just stu stood out because he was so encouraging. 
So we see here in this next section that, uh, so we see here in this first section actually, sorry, the freedom that the early Christians lived in. But what we're going to see next is a contrasting example. We're going to see something different than what we just saw. Because, you know, there's this tendency in which we think, oh, the early Christian church, it was just all light and life and babies smiling and sunshine and everything. Uh, but these were real people. And with any group of real people, things aren't going to be perfect. There are going to be problems. People aren't going to do what they should do. And that was absolutely true in the early church as well. It wasn't perfect. There were problems. And we get an example of that here in chapter 5 in this first part. And this brings us to our second section also, which is the things that people are dying to get. So please read with me from verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So, Kind of a radical story here, right? After telling us about the remarkable community that characterized the early church in Jerusalem, Luke, the author, gives us two contrasting examples. On the one hand, we have Barnabas, and on the other hand, we have Ananias and Sapphira. You see, after people, uh, people like Barnabas had started selling land and giving the money to the church, that got a lot of attention. It got a lot of uh, respect. And people looked up to Barnabas. People probably talked about him. You know, oh, can you believe what Barnabas did? I mean, wow, that guy is incredible. What a heart for God. And so here's Ananias and Sapphira, and they're hearing people talk about this, and maybe they want to get in on the action as well. You know, they've, they've got some land that they could sell, and they would love to have a reputation like Barnabas's reputation. They want to be well-known and respected, and, and so they see Barnabas gets all this attention by what he did, so they decide to get in on the action too. They have some land, they sell it, and, and they think that, you know, that'll, everybody will like them just like everybody thought that Barnabas was great. So they sell this land, but instead of giving the proceeds to the church, they give a proportion of the money. But here's the thing, though. They implied that they were giving the whole amount. Now, maybe you say, now, why does that even matter? Like, like why is that even a big deal? Well, it's a bit technical, so hang with me. I'll explain it real quick. The Greek word here where it says that Ananias kept back, that's one word, and it is a word which is... Uh, which means to misappropriate or to steal or to embezzle. There's only one other place where this particular word is used in the New Testament. It's in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, and there it is translated as to steal. 
Okay, so uh, because of that, there are many people who believe that there may have been some kind of contract between Ananias and the church and that Ananias embezzled some of this money. The, the issue, though, is that there was a definite intent to deceive. That was the intent, to give the impression of radical sacrifice in order to gain a reputation and an image before people. And so here walks Ananias with all his money. He's probably got wheelbarrows full of money. And, and he brings it all in. This is his big day. This is his moment in the sun. It's time to shine. Everybody's there. They're watching. Ananias comes and he lays all this money down at the apostles' feet. And what he's expecting is a big pat on the back. He's expecting to be praised. That people say about him, wow, and we thought Barnabas was generous. Wow, we thought Barnabas had a heart for God. Well, look at you. Man, Ananias, have you guys heard about what Ananias did? What kind of gift he gave to the church? That guy's incredible. That's what he was expecting and hoping for. But here's what happened. In walks Ananias, and instead of being praised, he's rebuked. Peter's given this, this word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit and he calls Ananias out in front of everybody. Ananias is doing something publicly to be seen by others and so it's only fitting that he be called out publicly. And Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and embezzle this money? He says, this was your land, man. Like, you didn't have to sell it. No one made you. You didn't have to do this. Uh, why have you contrived this deed in your heart, you have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias' crime was, that he, was not that he withheld some of the money. His sin was that he deceitfully implied that he was giving it all in order to gain a reputation and to impress others. Now there's a quick side note I'd like to make here uh, in verses 3 and 4. Two things. First of all, Peter says in verse 3, Satan filled your heart to do this thing. But then in verse 4, he says, Ananias, you contrived this deed in your heart. So first he says, Satan did this in your heart. Then he says, Ananias, you planned this in your own heart. So who was it? Was it Satan or Ananias? Well, both. It's an interesting thing. It shows us the interplay between, you know, when we sin, between temptation and us, you know, entertaining the temptation and formulating a plan and actually acting on it. The second thing I'd like to point out is this, that in verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit, but in verse 4, speaking of the same lie, he says, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. And what that tells us is two things that Peter believed about the Holy Spirit. First of all, Peter believed that the Holy Spirit was a person because you can't lie to a, a chair or, your, or an impersonal force or the wind. So he believes the Holy Spirit is a person and he also believes that the Holy Spirit is God. So this short text tells us a lot about the Holy Spirit. Peter believed the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so when Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his last. It's a pretty serious scene here. Now keep in mind, um, Peter didn't pronounce a death sentence on Ananias. Peter didn't say, Ananias, I strike you down in God's name. No, I think probably Peter was more shocked than anybody, right? He's just kind of here. He's trying to tell Ananias, man, you're lying. And then the guy just falls over and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you guys take this guy outside or something, right? Like, um, I think he was probably really uh, surprised. Now, we don't know for sure. Uh, but my guess would be Ananias' cause of death was probably cardiac arrest. He was probably so shocked by what happened. 
Obviously, he very much cares about what people think about him. And so when rather than being praised and patted on the back, he gets rebuked publicly in front of everybody, he was probably so shocked that he just dropped right there on the spot. In order to gain a reputation, an image before others, of being something that they weren't, these people told a brazen lie. Their motive in doing what they did and giving the money wasn't to help the poor, but it was to boost their own ego. That's what we see. And God said, I'm not going to tolerate that, not at this crucial time in the formation of the church. So Ananias and Sapphira, they, they are a dramatic illustration of the kinds of things that people are dying to get. They died literally in the pursuit of these things. But what were the things they were after? Think about it with me. First of all, they were dying to get a reputation, acclaim, status, respect, awe. Secondly, they were dying for security. And thirdly, they were dying for enjoyment. Ananias and Sapphira told a bold-faced lie. And if they were Christians, which I, I do believe that they were, it seems that they were, then that makes their situation all the more applicable to us. Because they're an example of people who compromise their convictions. Now it has been said, and I think it's been well said, that a good test of your heart is to consider if there is something which would cause you to compromise your most fundamental convictions. I'll say that again. A good test of your heart is to think, are there any things that would cause you to compromise your most fundamental convictions? Uh, for example, you know, it, most people believe that lying is wrong. But if there is something in your life that would drive you to go against your own conviction because you want it so much that you would be willing to lie for it, that you would be willing to cover up some things, uh, would you, con you know, what are those things that would cause you to break your own convictions? For you, those things, that's a sign that that thing is probably way too important to you. It's an idol, we would say, in your heart. You know, most people believe that cheating is wrong. But if there's something that in your life that you want so badly that you would be willing to compromise your own convictions and cheat in order to get it, that's a big red flag that that thing is way too important to you. It's an idol. Now, that's what we see here with Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think that they were particularly evil people. Uh, they, they were probably a lot like you and me. They held convictions that lying is wrong, that stealing is wrong. Yet in this situation, they found themselves driven by desires in their heart that were so strong that they drove them to break their own convictions. Now, what would cause a person to do what they did? What was it that they were dying, quite literally, to get? Well, first of all, they were dying to get a reputation. They desired a reputation to be perceived by others in a certain way. Secondly, there was this desire for security. You see, money isn't just money. I, I hope you realize that, that money gives security. It gives a sense of security. And, and that's quite likely what Ananias and Sapphira were saying. saying, well, well, they've got all this money here. I mean, what if they give it all away? And then, you know, who knows? What if uh, the economy falls apart? What if they lose their jobs? So in order to make sure that we have security and we'll still get this reputation that we want, let's lie. Thirdly, there's, the, there's this fear of missing out, which I think is very common. There's this fear that if you give greatly, you will miss out on stuff. If you give your whole life to God, for example, you might miss out on having some fun. Uh, 
Your kids might miss out on some experiences that other kids get to have. If you give generously, then you won't have any left for yourself, and then you'll miss out, or your kids will miss out. So there are these things that people are dying to get. Freedom. People are dying to get freedom. People are dying to get a good name. People are dying to get security. And people are dying to get enjoyment of life. The question, though, is how can we get those things? Because it would seem that they are so incredibly elusive. Like Ananias and Sapphira, people desire these things so much, yet despite their pursuit of these things, they are eluded by them. That brings us to our third and final point, the backwards way to truly get these things that people are dying to get. And I'll just read this last verse in verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Isn't that interesting that fear, the fear of God came upon the whole church when everybody heard about what happened. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because Ananias and Sapphira were driven to lie out of fear. But not the fear of God, rather fear of insecurity, fear of loss of employment or, or, or enjoyment, and if they, if they gave up everything. But the result of their deaths was that great honor and reverence for God. Now think about the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas was an encourager of others. Ananias and Sapphira were worried about making themselves look good. Barnabas was generous, Ananias and Sapphira were deceptive. Barnabas was free. He was free in regard to his relationships and his attitude about possessions. Ananias and Sapphira were enslaved. Barnabas' actions led to life. Life in the community. Later on, he will become one of the very first missionaries who goes around to spread the gospel. His actions lead to life. Ananias and Sapphira, their actions lead to their own death. Ananias and Sapphira were, were only seeking after the same things that all of us deeply desire. Freedom, a good name, security, and enjoyment of life. Yet their pursuit of those things led to their death, led to their ruin. Yet on the other hand, here's Barnabas, and he has all those things that Ananias and Sapphira so deeply want. He has them all, don't you see? Barnabas has freedom. He has freedom in his relationships and his attitude towards money. Barnabas has a good name, a reputation. Barnabas ends up having an amazing life, traveling the world, enjoying life, spreading the gospel as a missionary. Now, how did Barnabas get those things? He got them in a way which seems very backwards, actually. He got freedom by giving up his freedom. He got a good name by not being concerned about his name, by being focused on encouraging others. He got security by giving up his security. You see, he got enjoyment of life by giving up his life and giving his life fully over to God. And that's the irony of it. This is what I'm saying. This is the backwards way to truly get the things that you desire. Jesus said, if anyone tries to hold on to their life, they will lose it. It will slip like sand between their fingers. But whoever gives up their life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. That's what Jesus said. That's the way to find everything that your heart truly desires. Everything that you long for in your heart of hearts, deep down inside, it's found in Jesus Christ. That's the backwards way, and I'll tell you what, it's the only way to truly get those things. Let me explain a little bit. We all want security, right? That's why people put their hope in money and material possessions. But the truth is that money and material possessions, they are a false security, Jesus tells the story of a rich man 
this rich man who was a farmer and he had so much grain that he didn't even know what to do with it. He had to keep building himself more and more barns and silos and places to store his grain because he just had so much of it. He didn't even know what to do with it. And he found his security in having all his grain. But one night, he died, like all of us will. And then, well, then what good did all that grain do him? Nothing. This man had found security in his abundance of material possessions, but it was a false security. It couldn't save his life. It couldn't save his soul. It was a false sense of security. So that security that all of us desire, that true security, we need to realize it's only found in Jesus Christ. And that is the message of the gospel, that the Son of God gave up his security He left the security and the comfort of heaven. He gave up his security in order to give you a security that will never fail you and can never be taken away from you. Jesus gave up his security. He laid aside his freedom so that you could be free. Jesus gave up his security, came to a hostile land where the very people he created questioned him, spat in his face, beat him, nailed him to a tree. He gave up his own security in order to purchase a security for you that can never be taken away. In 1 Peter, he puts it this way, that he purchased for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, secured in the heavens for you. You have security in his love that he will never leave you or forsake you. He is your rock, which means it speaks of stability and security. You see, the backwards way of finding the security that we all desire is in realizing that it is only found in Jesus Christ. In him, you can have true security in this life because you know that you're his child and he is going to take care of you and he'll even work bad things for your good and for his glory. And in him, you can have eternal security. That's the message of the gospel, you see. And when you understand that, then you can be truly free. Then you can be truly free in your relationships. Because yes, you make yourself vulnerable. And yes, maybe people will hurt you. But there is one who is unchanging, who will always be there, who is a true companion. You can be free in regard to material possessions because you no longer need to look to them to be your security. You can be free before God knowing that your sins have been forgiven and they have been wiped clean by Jesus. In regard to a good name, this other desire that we have, the message of the gospel is that in Christ, God makes you a new person and he gives you a new name. He removes the labels that people have put put on you and placed on you and labeled you with, that you yourself have labeled yourself with, and he gives you a new identity, a new name, a good name in Jesus Christ. He names you his child. He names you righteous. He names you chosen and beloved. He gives you a reputation that in Christ, you don't have to worry about giving yourself a good name because the message of the gospel is that in Jesus, that Jesus became of no reputation for you. That's the message of the gospel. He became of no reputation of disrepute for you so that you could receive a new name and a new identity so that you could become a child of God. When it comes to enjoyment of life, the message of the gospel is that Jesus gave up enjoyment of life in order that you might have true, lasting, fulfilling life now and forever. And if you will lay down your life at his feet and say, here you go, Lord, it's all yours. Do with it what you will. He will lead you into a more fulfilling life than you ever dreamed possible. I remember for me personally, that was one of my great fears in becoming a Christian. That if I become a Christian, then my life will become boring. 
truth is, you know, so many years down the road, now I can look back and I can say, well, just kind of the opposite happened. I see where the, the people I was spending time with at the time, where their lives have gone and where my life has gone as I followed Jesus. And it's led me, following Jesus has led me into the most interesting, exciting, and fulfilling paths more than I ever dreamed possible. But even if that weren't the case, I'll say this, true enjoyment of life that we desire, it is found in and through Jesus because in giving our lives to him, we get the promise of eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 15, I love this part where Paul talks about heaven. And people are asking, what's heaven going to be like, Paul? And he says, well, let me put it this way. It's one of the metaphors that he used. Use a couple, but one of them is this. He says it's kind of like life within the womb and life outside of the womb. Like a baby who's in the womb, that's all they know. It's warm, it's comfortable, and they like it in there, right? It's, it's nice. They have everything taken care of. And they might have a sense that maybe there is something beyond, right? They can hear the voices. They have people poking them when they poke outside and everything. And, but a baby in the womb, they can't comprehend the majesty of the Rocky Mountains. They can't see the clouds. They can't see a sunset over the ocean. They have no idea. They can't comprehend the intense beauty and pleasure that is in this world because all they know is what's inside. And, and it takes a painful process, doesn't it, to pass from that world inside the womb into this one. But it is so very much worth it, isn't it? And that's what Paul says, that's, that's a metaphor for heaven for you right there. It's as different and so much better as life outside the womb is from life inside the womb. The, the enjoyment of the life that we seek, it is found in and through Jesus Christ, both in this life and in the life to come. See, don't you see, I guess that's my point for you today, that it's all about Jesus. How everything that you desire, everything you desire in your heart of hearts, it's found in him. That in him you can live free. You can live free like Barnabas lived, like many of these early Christian did, Christians did. But apart from him, you're like Ananias and Sapphira. You're killing yourself. Live free or die. That is the message. That is the choice which the gospel presents to us along with this call, choose life. Choose life. Choose it today. Choose it again. If you haven't chosen it recently, again. Turn to Jesus and truly live and live free. And find in him everything that you desire and everything you need. Amen? Will you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for the great hope of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that in you we can become new people. Our sins are forgiven because of what you did for us on the cross. Lord, we truly desire to live free. In our heart of hearts, all the things that we're conflicted about, Lord, help us to see that the things that we truly desire, they're all found in you. Lord, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. It's the beginning to the end. And we always come back to the gospel. What did Jesus do for us? Who is Jesus for us? Thank you, Lord, for all that you are. You are our all in all. And we celebrate you this morning. We celebrate you as we go. We give you praise because of who you are and what you've done. But may our hearts be constantly mindful of the gospel, constantly filled with thankfulness and rejoicing because of who you are and what you've done. And may we live as truly free people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.